another in our series of podcasts here at the Natural Resources Institute. It's great to have you with us again. My guest today is Professor Steve Belmain, and I am really delighted to have him as he is a world-renowned expert on rats. Now, I know that rats can be the stuff of nightmares, but as I'm sure Steve will explain, they're also incredibly intelligent and useful creatures who can do all sorts of interesting stuff which benefits humanity. So, Professor Steve Belmain, welcome to this podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So, I want to know, what were you like as a little boy? Were you always interested in, in rats and furry creatures? Where did this interest come from? It, it really it didn't start at that sort of young age, really. It was actually after I joined the Natural Resources Institute. So, I finished my PhD and in those days, we had uh, meetings where sometimes we had inquiries from outside. And we had this call from Mozambique one day. And my head of department said, well, is anyone here who knows anything about rats? And I timidly put my hand up. I'd only been there maybe a week or two in, in the job. And I had done some work as an undergraduate at the University of Vermont in America, where I did my biology degree, where we were out trapping mammals around uh, maple sugar forests. So uh, in this meeting, I put my hand up and say, all right, off you go to Mozambique then. So I literally, within a few weeks, had put some rat traps in my suitcase and, and flown off to Mozambique. And it was really just trying to understand some of the assessments that the charity had been doing to understand people's problems and needs. So this was after the, the Civil War in Mozambique, and there was a lot of effort to try to help people improve their livelihoods. So I went and visited a number of these communities, and they were all complaining about rats. So what, what were they complaining about? What were the problems these communities were having in Mozambique? The rats were having a problem post-harvest. So this is after they harvested their maize, and then they stored their maize inside their houses. So and then they would live off that staple for many months until the next cropping season. So that was the main problem they were identifying. But this was also an area where people had bubonic plague. So the plague going back to the times of, you know, medieval Europe and the Black Death. So hang on a minute. So you went into Mozambique knowing that there was bubonic plague knocking about in this area? That's right. So this was an area where historically and currently they were having plague outbreaks. Wait, you... So not necessarily in the villages I was going okay. to, but it's, it's endemic in the area. So were you frightened? Did that frighten you at all? The fact that you were going into an area no, where there was a plague? No, not at all. I mean, it, 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 I did, of course, do a little bit of background research. It wasn't the right time of year, so it's kind of a seasonal outbreak. So the time I was going, there wasn't really any danger of this. And of course, I knew that, of course, the plague is something that can be easily treated with antibiotics. So I wasn't too worried about it, really. But it was something that certainly was fascinating in the sense that the communities had been living with this for a long time. And so it was really trying to understand all the problems that they had with rats. And that really opened my eyes because it seemed everyone was neglecting the problem. I think part of the, the, the fascination of it was that this, you know, this is a problem that's happening largely at nighttime. And all these charities and donors were coming out to the communities looking for problems. And they didn't see the problem themselves. Mm. You're there during the day. You don't really notice there's a rat problem. But at night, of course, is when the, the rats are coming out and, you know, they're crawling over people while they're trying to sleep in their houses, running over them. They're being bitten in their sleep. So, you know, people are on their hands and on their feet and on their neck. The rats are running around looking for food and they might smell 
maybe some leftover food or you're sweating at night because it's very hot there. That was a really horrifying thing to learn. And that, you know, a lot of people, their, their sleep was disturbed because they're living in this house and all the rats are living in the house too. They're living up in the roof area, which is made of thatching. So it's like a grass roof, which is a perfect nesting site for the rats. So we started trapping there and we started realizing there are hundreds of rats in every house. So what were you doing? Were you setting were you setting individual traps in in individual houses at night? That's right. So we were setting set we were working with the community giving them traps to set each night. So we showed them how to set these traps that I brought with me. And you know, we we put quite a lot of traps out because we you know, we were hearing these horror stories and so we were giving each household which is not very big. It's essentially it's like one big room with subdivisions in it. So you have a bedroom and a bit of a, a kitchen area. And we would, within a couple of weeks, we would, we would trap about 100 rats inside My the house. My goodness. Which was just That's an enormous number of rats. And were you, were you trapping and, and killing them or were you trapping them and, and taking them away? What were you doing with them? No, it, it, these were kill traps. So we weren't doing any live trapping. And so it became, you know, the, this sort of awakening within me about these problems that were largely being ignored. And yet it seemed quite easy to do something about it you know that's really interesting isn't it why do you think that nobody had done this before you came along with your traps well i think it's it's something i learned over the years after i started doing more and more on rodents is that people do want to ignore the problem i mean it because of that yuck uh, horrified sort of factor uh, you know the psychology and understanding human behavior with regards to rats is that we do just want to sweep it under the carpet and you know, just ignore it and we just can't deal with that. And, and what I learned in these communities in Mozambique was that people were trying to control the rodents and inevitably failing. So they, you know, they'd, they'd get a hold of some poison or something and they'd put some poison out, but they didn't really notice a difference in their lives. They just you know, tried it, failed, and then they just kind of become quite apathetic and immune to the problem. So they just learn well, we just have to live with the problem. There's nothing we can do. We've tried, it doesn't work. So when mm. I started working with them, I said, well, remember, and, and they did understand that, you know, farmers, if you try to control the rats, they just come from someone else's house or from neighboring areas. So they did understand that concept, but they hadn't really taken it on board in how to coordinate their efforts together. Right. So you're saying that it's no good one household just setting traps because obviously the next door rats will just that's it. Yep. fill the space that's, yep. that's left. So did you have to work with the entire community? Indeed, to... that's essentially what my recommendation was. And we uh, sought funding from the UK Department for International Development to s do a study to look at community level rat trapping. And so we did this in these areas where plague was endemic, but in other areas too of the country. And we showed that by working together at that community level, if everyone's trapping together, they could really significantly reduce the rat population. So it was quite massive reductions within just a, a short period of one or two months. Essentially, people were able to, to observe in their own lives massive improvements. So suddenly they weren't being bitten at night. They were getting a better night's sleep because of the noise you know, of the rats just running around. There certainly the, the food stores were lasting a lot more. There was less contamination of the maize. So, you know, there was no feces and urine all over the, the food that they were keeping in their house. So they really realized this was, you know, a, a, ma a major improvement in their lives that they'd never experienced before. So, you know, that was, I think, the real sort of eye-opening event for the communities that they'd never experienced life without rats. 
they'd always mm. had rats, you know, ever, you know, ever since. And so this was the first experience where they could really say our lives are significantly improved. But something I want to take you back to that you said um, earlier, just just a few minutes ago about your your job is obviously a rat. You know, you, you try and understand rat behavior, but you also mentioned having to understand human behavior as well. Talk, talk me through that. Why are the two things, uh, you know, mutually important? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the reason why rats are a pest is human behavior. You know, we're growing agricultural crops. We're providing food and harborage for these rodents in our houses and, and the food not only in the crops, but a lot of our waste. So, you know, sewage and all the things that we cast away are still excellent food for rats. The other problem, I think, is that because they're mammals, I guess because they're animals, they're, they're quite different from insect pests in that sense. You know, they're a big furry creature and people, I think we give them human characteristics sometimes. So, and I think this often happens, you know, in, at least in Western society, you know, we're bombarded with children's stories where, you know, you have Mickey Mouse and Mighty Mouse and all these cartoon characters and books. We kind of see them as really clever things. And of course they are clever. They are smart animals. They can learn, they can change their mm. behaviors in response to their environment. But we often say, oh, well, they're just too clever to control. And we give them really superhuman abilities in terms of intelligence and behavior. And I think that's another reason why people get fatalistic. They say, oh, well, we try and we fail and they give up in a sense. Because we're, we're naturally quite scared of rats, aren't we? They're, they're the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, and I, I think that's true across the world. People really don't like them. And it's it's hard to, to you know, really uh, tackle the problem when you, you really just don't want to talk about it and it, whatever you... Th- Is that like a primeval fear, do you think? Is it something that's so instinctive I, within I humans? I think so. I mean, it's, it's, if you see this with a number of different species, I mean, not just rats, but bats and spiders and other things, which kind of look scary, but I think they're also linked to this history of disease. But I think people do link it to, you know, like the Black Death in Europe. You know, people hear these stories and it becomes part of the local folklore wherever yes. you, because they're pests, but of course they really do harm us sometimes. They're like trapeze artists. They can run across electrical wires that connect houses and, you know, ropes. So this is one of the ways rats spread around the world. They would, you know, when the ships are tied up at port, these ropes that connect them to the the dock, the rats would just walk right across those those ropes. And their teeth are the other thing, aren't they? What's what's really distinctive about their teeth? Yeah, they're, they're, that's they're, that's what makes them rodents. So whether they're rats or mice or squirrels or other kinds of rodents, there's many many species there. They all share this common thing about their teeth. So they have these incisors, you know, the front of their mouth, just like we do. We have these flat front teeth. But their teeth continue to grow throughout their lifetime. So that means as they chew, they can actually sharpen their teeth because of the way the enamel. So you have this harder element on your two teeth that is called enamel on the outside. And the way this is uh, uh, sort of distributed on rat teeth allows them to be sort of self-sharpening as they as they gnaw away. Their teeth stay razor sharp. Right. Okay. So hence why they're such a pest and they can chew through electrical cables and start uh, house fires yeah. and metal aluminium really? lead and sort of the soft metals they can chew Gosh, right through those things even even concrete and things like that they can chew that's through. incredible now tell me steve is there a time when you've ever felt personally scared coming face to face with a rat um yes but not very often and, and actually this is some work i was doing in bangladesh with colleagues there and we were actually trying to take photos of rats 
in a semi-natural sort of situation, which is very difficult to do because they either run away from you or, you know, they, they just don't sit there and let you take photos of them. But we wanted to get some really good photos of them because we, there were a lot of different species there. And we wanted to, again, raise awareness about the species with the communities we were working with. So what we were doing essentially is capturing them alive in traps. And then we were trying to t- tie a little string to their back legs so they couldn't run off. And so I was working with a colleague of mine who was holding the string and I was trying to get up really close with the camera so I could take really close up pictures of them. And they didn't like that. So they would, uh, you know, when a, when a rat is sort of cornered, they get quite defensive and aggressive because of course they're defending themselves. So uh, uh, quite a few times they would attack the camera, you know, they run at the camera when I'm right behind the camera. So they're, they're really coming at you and, you know, they're sort of, you know, biting and uh, on the lens of the, of the camera. To, so that was a bit scary. So they'd actually attack, they'd attack and try and well, bite they, the camera. Yes, I mean, it, because I was very close to them and they couldn't get away because of this rope around their leg. So, it was, uh, you know, it, it, that's not a sort of a thing I would recommend people to do, but we, it was just really to get these photos. And so, yes, yeah, so it is a bit scary because I was quite close to them. How did you tie sense. a little rope around their legs? Because that must have been tricky as well, because they're quite agile. They can turn right around and bite behind them. They can, they? they can, but I mean, there are ways of handling rats when you catch them alive. So when you catch them alive, normally what you do is you then put them into a bag. So you have like a, a cloth bag. So you sort of empty them into the cloth bag. And then when they're in the bag, you can hold them uh, so that, you know, so they can't move around. So then you can grab them by the back of the neck. So that, you know, like, you know, you see mothers and mother kittens like carrying the their babies the around that way. They grab yeah. them by the scruff. Yeah. So you can do this when they're, in, when they're inside the bag and then get them out of the bag. So they, you're holding them tight and then right. they're not able to bite you. And then, then you can get the string on Because I'm, I'm always amazed by how so, agile these creatures are. Because I've got cats and, and they often, they sometimes bring in little mice, little field mice or whatever. And yeah, uh, yeah. once I picked one up by, by the tail to put it outside because it was still alive. Mm-hmm. And it turned around and bit me on yeah. my finger. And yeah. I dropped it. I was so yeah, surprised. Yeah. It, didn't, you know, it didn't break the skin because it was a tiny yeah. mouse. But it, it was quite a sharp nip. Yeah. And I've seen also yeah. uh, the mice standing up to the cats when they're cornered. They go up on their hind legs yeah, they and they do a little boxing thing they with do, their front absolutely. front paws. And it's quite yeah. extraordinary, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I imagine a, a bigger rat yeah. must be quite fearsome when it's cornered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You definitely do not want to pick rats up by the <laughs> I don't tail think like I would. That. And I think a lot of people make you know make that mistake. Oh, you know, you can pick them up and hold them that way, but they will turn around. You know, they they are they they're, they're very yeah. flexible they'll actually turn around and bite their own tail off if they think they can't get away. So the skin on the, you know, essentially what they do is they nip at the skin and then the skin just comes off their tail like a sleeve and then allows oh them goodness. to run off. It's, it's horrifying when they do it because then they, of course their tail is, doesn't have any skin on it. It grows back probably, or their tail falls off or something. I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah, you, you only make that mistake yes, once, yeah, I think, exactly. holding, trying to hold a live rodent by the tail and then they, you know, they do. Try I will, I will never do that if I, if I'm unfortunate enough to be confronted with a rat in my own house. And <laughs> um, I want to take you back to their, their survival instinct, which is incredibly strong. Like you say, a rat can chew through most things. It will bite its own tail off. You know, it's quite extraordinary. What about other aspects of their characters? Do you think they're sort of altruistic in the way they live as a pack? You know, would, would one rat sort of sacrifice itself to help another rat, for example? You know, oh, they are intelligent animals. They have social structures, but not all rodent species do. So some rodents are more social than others. 
So here in the UK, we have what are called Norway rats. They're quite big rats. And we understand their behavior quite well. And they do have territories and families that they, you know, they, they care for siblings and things like that. There's not a lot of research under, to understand the true altruism in there. But it, and in fact, often what happens if, you know, you trap a rat, other rats come along and start eating the dead rat. So there is a bit of cannibalism in there sometimes. But there is some evidence, at least they can learn from each other, where, for example, if you fed rat poison to rats and another rat observed another rat dying after eating poison, that they would learn to avoid to eat that poison without actually experiencing the poison itself. There is, there is a society there and, they, you know, they, they alert to each other to danger. You know, they have certain uh, cries and sounds they make. They're very defensive as well. But their ability to learn from each other, I think, is quite limited. I think most of the learning is through personal or individual experience. We've talked about the habits of sort of eating sewage and, and, and rubbish and, and having quite disgusting habits. Are they, are they dirty animals or are they clean animals? They're actually very clean animals. They're fastidious in trying to keep themselves clean. So, you know, if you, rodents, like many animals, they spend a lot of time grooming themselves. Just like cats, you'll see them grooming themselves. Rats are the same. They would they don't really want to live in dirty environments. They'd much rather have nice, fresh, clean food. And if they have the choice, of course, they are going to seek out nice, clean, fresh food. But the reality is, is that the you know, life is often brutal and short for wild animals. They live in situations where they're competing with each other for food and resources. There's lots of them out there. And if, you know, there was sewage around and none of the other rats were taking advantage of that food source, some of them are going to dive in. You know, they're hungry. They've got to eat something, but they don't want to stay there either. You know, again, this is, I think, one of the challenges we have with rats is they can go into those very dirty environments, but then come into our kitchens and our bedrooms with all that dirt still on them and spread diseases that way. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the diseases that rats can spread. What? How do they present a real and present danger mm. to, to us humans? Because they're mammals, they're similar to humans in many ways, bio biologically, they can pick up diseases that survive in their bodies, means they're probably going to survive in our bodies as well. They're interacting with other rodent species. So, you know, wild, really wild rodents are coming into contact with the ones that are living in our cities and spread disease that way as well. Plague, of course, is one of those. There are many other diseases which we call hemorrhagic fevers. So this is where, in a severe case, you have uh, internal bleeding, so your kidneys and liver start failing. You have this sort of blood, you know, being, you know, septicemia into your blood. So one of those diseases is called Lassa fever. This is found in West Africa, and it's been causing huge outbreaks in Nigeria, and certain countries in, in West Africa for, for many years, and it's particularly got worse in, in recent years. It's a virus, so it, it's not something you can just go and get in an antibiotic and treat easily. It also attacks people in the prime of life, so it's kind of young people and can have a mortality rate up to 40%. Oh, that sounds horrific. So so you the rat bites you. I presume you get it from being bitten by a rat. Well, again, it's it may be through uh, urine, feces, or even aerosols. So rats cough and sneeze, just like we do. And there's some belief, we don't really know for sure, that people can inhale that and catch Lhasa that way. Is it transmissible from human to human as well? Once it gets into the human population, it's transmissible human to human. Just like what we've seen with coronavirus, 
it's become more transmissible. So over the years, Lassa, the Lassa virus has also mutated. And it seems particularly now in some areas of West Africa, it's transmitting more frequently between humans than it did in the past. Wasn't there, was there a case in the UK recently as well? Was that Lassa That's fever? That's right. There were some imported cases. So people, again, had traveled from the Lassa endemic zone in West Africa, came to, to the UK and unfortunately died because, mm. you know, it's, it's very difficult to treat when it gets to advanced stages. Is that something we should be worried about? The, I mean, it, I don't know, I don't think anyone would uh, currently speculate that Lassa could become endemic in Europe, but there are many other diseases that are, are certainly heading our way. There are other uh, classes of viruses called hantaviruses. We then have many bacteria. So again, you have things that are just more like gastroenteric bacteria. You know, we hear about salmonella and E. coli and rats are certainly spreading those things around on some of our farms. And How do rats spread salmonella? Talk me through that, because I thought salmonella was just through, um, you know, a piece of chicken that uh, maybe you hadn't cooked thoroughly or been a bit warm before you cooked it. What have rats got to do with that? So a lot of these bacteria, they're in our, in our gastroenteric system. So they get in our stomach, in our intestines. And that's, of course, how we get diarrhea and dysentery and feeling really bad from them because they upset our, our digestion system. So, of course, they get into chickens as well. And that's, of course, why chickens have them and they get into their eggs because they get salmonella in there and their GI tracts as well. So rats are eating you know, the same things the chickens are eating. They're living in these environments where the chickens are picking up the same bacteria and then excreting it somewhere else. So the rodents are kind of like an intermediate, well, I wouldn't even say they're intermediate vectors. They are another reservoir that can uh, either pick up salmonella. It probably makes them ill too, but you know, they're, you know, they're, we don't really know that, but we do know that they're certainly involved in spreading a lot of these bacteria around that are giving us dysentery. So that those are all the reasons why our fear of rats is actually yeah. very well founded and why rats are often demonized in books and uh, cartoons and films. What about the good things that rats do? Because I know you, you're, you've been very involved with um, various projects where rats are actually used to do things like sniff That's out right. landmines. Yeah. So there, there has been quite a lot of work in Tanzania. This is a certain species of rodent called uh, African giant pouched rats. So they're quite a big rodent. They're much bigger than the rodents we have here in Europe. How big, and, how big roughly? What, what would you compare them to? Uh, well, probably about a cat, the size of a cat. Cat size, yeah. quite, quite big, yeah. yeah. And they live quite long too. So, you know, they can live seven, eight years. So again, if you, if you want to train an animal, of course, you don't want them to, to die the next day. So you, you don't can, want them to peg it before they've had a chance to be useful. That's right. So the fact that they live a long time means you can train them. And essentially, it's relying on this acute sense of smell that all rodents have. You know, that's how they find food and, and survive in the environment. They're very good at smelling things. And so what they realize is that you can actually train them to pick up smells that we don't necessarily smell. So one of the things they first uh, taught these rodents to do is find uh, landmines, bombs buried in the ground. So they're smelling the TNT that is inside these landmines that have been put in the ground. So they're essentially, they have this program in Tanzania called a popo or hero rats. So they have them on little collars and leashes. And then these rodents run up and down through a field where these bombs are. They're too light to set off the bomb. So then the, the rodents have been trained to smell the TNT. They make this uh, behavior where they start digging to, to tell the human nearby that this is a place where there's a bomb. 
and so that's, that's absolutely extraordinary isn't it yeah that's incredible I'm just wondering I'm just trying to picture you know when you when you go uh, off on your holidays mm. through uh, you know Gatwick or Heathrow or another major airport and you see those cute little spaniels you know running around sniffing for drugs yeah. can you imagine a day when we'll have a, a giant rat I, th- running I think around we might actually live to see that day quite soon <laughs> because they're actually trying to do that so because because of the smell, there's a lot of issues in Africa with illegally traded animal products, you know, like elephant tusks and yes. other things like that, which often are put in through airport systems, not necessarily in personal baggage, but they go through cargo airport systems. So at the moment, they're trying to teach them how to detect different animal parts and smells and be able to go to an airport situation and identify containers that might contain elephant tusks and things like that so yeah and and they can also sniff out disease as well that's right so there's another program in tanzania that's quite successful in detecting tuberculosis tb at the moment detecting tb requires a human to stare down a microscope all day and it's hard work if you're doing it all day and you get tired and you miss things so the advantage of the rodents is that they're just smelling the tb bacteria itself so they get uh, samples from humans so this is just a sputum a spit sample and they can smell the TB in that sample. And it's really helped detect a lot more people with TB that had been missed by the normal human screening. Do you think they could be trained to sniff out, you know, COVID-19, for example? I'm not sure how far they've got with that, but there's no reason why not. Again, if it, it really would depend on getting samples and figuring out what is the actual chemistry and the smells that might be there. But there's no reason to think they couldn't uh, detect many diseases that way if you were able to get the right kinds of samples to them and, and understand what is unique about the, the odors produced by those particular diseases. Fascinating. So rats as pets, yes or no? <laughs> uh, a lot of people do have pet rats. It is a huge industry around it. Mm. Uh, and I think, again, because they are social creatures, they can be quite affectionate. They, they, you can cuddle a rat just the way you could a, a cat or a dog in that rat. Cat, would they come on your lap for a cuddle while you're oh, watching yeah, TV? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of this hero rat program. They have to be handled by humans. So they're all domesticated. They, they cuddle the rats to train them. They are domesticated, so you don't need to worry about being bitten by them because, you know, they've been sort of learned that we are their friends, we're not a threat to them, and see them see us as part of their family, in a sense, the way cats and dogs can too. So I don't have pets, like pet rats. I, I, I don't think it's uh, something that would suit my lifestyle. And I can't, I, with my work, I just don't see I would uh, be a very good uh owner of rats in the way that I'm usually out there trying to kill them all. So in terms of uh, behavior, what similarities would you would you say rats have with humans? We have, we have to be careful about, again, anthropomorphizing rodents and giving them, making them seem too human because they're not. I mean, I guess they are intelligent, but we have to believe we're more intelligent than, than the rats. Do you think that's the key to controlling rats is to not think of them in human terms, I think I think so. I think so. You have to you have to really understand the limitations and understand their biology, their behavior, in order to to manage them more effectively. And I think this is again one of the things we've struggled with. It, it, the newspapers are full of stories of giant rats we can't control, and it's just not true. So I think separating fact from fiction is really important as a scientist to understand rodents in the way that they are rodents. So why is it important to understand their behavior? rather than just go out and kill them? 
Okay, well, for, for example, rodents have uh, something that's called neophobia. This is the fear of new objects. So that means, for example, if you put down a trap or some poison, the rodents aren't going to immediately just go and, and eat the poison or jump in the trap. There's a new object in their environment, and they're very cautious about that. So they're just, they, they may just totally avoid it. So those changes to the environment, you must appreciate because, you know, this is a problem. You know, you put down a trap, you don't catch something, you think, oh, it doesn't work. But you need to be a bit patient for them to overcome that fear of the new object. And then eventually it's not a new object anymore. After a few days, they get used to that object and then they might start looking to eat the poison. So the understanding that behavior means that, for example, when you want to go control rodents, you wouldn't just tidy up the place first. If you, you come into an area and you see, oh, there's lots of rats here and there's a lot of mess around, I'm going to clean up all that mess and try to control the roads. As an expert, what we would try to say is don't clean up the mess because you're creating lots of new objects by just cleaning up the mess. So you're that almost would, like tipping them off. You're tipping off the rats. Yeah. Something's about to happen and well, they will change or, or their behavior. You, you make, you're increasing their fear by just changing all the things in the environment. They're just not going to, that would probably deter them for a while. So it would, it would act as a bit of a repellent but then, of course, they will come back. But if you're trying to control the rodent, you, you just leave all the mess there, control the population. After you've reduced the population through trapping or poisoning, then you would have a tidy up and clean up the, the mess that's there. Something related to that is also their inability to vomit. So when we eat something that makes us sick, we would vomit it up. Rodents can't do that. Bi biologically, physiologically, they can't. Uh, you know, if they eat something, they can't get rid of it. They're stuck with it. And that's where this neophobia comes from. Because if they're out in the wild and they're eating things, they're not sure if it's safe to eat. They're, they're, they're quite cautious in what they eat. So they'll just take a little bit of it. And if they feel fine, then maybe the next day they come back and they eat some more of it. But that cautiousness is also why some of the control products we use don't work very well. So if you put out a poison and that poison works very, very quickly so that the rodent actually feels ill within a few hours, they put two and two together. So they are able to think that. So they eat something, they start to feel sick. They go, oh, that food was bad. I'm not going to eat that again. And so that's related to this neophobia. It also relates to how we control the rodent because we need to understand that the best poisons are ones that don't actually make them feel ill immediately. What we call anticoagulant poisons work quite well. These are things based on warfarin and blood thinning because they don't feel ill when they eat them. And it takes them three or four days usually to die. One thing I wanted to ask you about, talking about, you know, um, longer lasting uh, poisons, what about the cruelty aspect? Because I know you've recently done some work on this where you, you discovered that rats, you know, they do feel pain. They are sentient creatures and some traps are just plain cruel. So talk, talk me through you yeah. know, how you balance uh, controlling a, a rat population with not being deliberately cruel to a wild animal. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it's a difficult balance to get right. And really at the moment, the pest control industry and controlling rodents really takes very little account of animal welfare. For a long time, I think people believed that these anticoagulant poisons were relatively humane. The way the poison works essentially it causes internal bleeding, which should, in a, in a sense, lower blood pressure and essentially rodents feel tired and sleepy and go to bed and don't wake up in a sense. But the reality is, is it probably is much more painful than that. Most of the other poisons that are commercially used are also probably quite painful. So there is a backlash against poison. 
because of the welfare impacts, mm -hmm. but also because of environmental impacts on them. Some kinds of traps are probably quite efficient. You kill traps that are very, you know, it kills them quite instantly. They have a strong kill bar on them. They're dying quite instantly. So I think some kill traps probably are very humane. The problem is, is other traps haven't necessarily thought about humaneness or efficiency and they may not be quite as good. So trapping is probably on the whole better than poisoning, but it's not as efficient. So that's the real struggle here is that, uh, you know, poisons are widely commercialized in a sense, they're kind of easy to use in terms of they don't require a lot of labor to deliver. Trapping is much more labor intensive. There are some types of traps that are probably really inhumane and there's a worry, uh, well, I think the UK will probably ban them. Other countries already ban them. These are things called like glue traps, where essentially it's like a piece of plastic with a very sticky, strong glue on it. And the rat just walks onto it and gets stuck. But then of course it may not die very quickly. It may be stuck there for days and essentially dehydrates or, or starves to death. So those kind of traps I think should be mm. banned, but we really are lacking alternatives. And I think that's another aspect of my work is looking for more humane ways of managing route rodent pests. And one thing that seems to be gaining traction here is a use of fertility control. So essentially mm. birth control contraceptives for rodents. They say, you know, that's one of the problems with rats is they just have very large litters very frequently and they build their numbers quickly. So if we can control their fertility, we can sort of stop the problem from ever developing. Now, the challenge with rodents is how do you get that contraceptive into them? That was going to be my next question. How on earth do you get the rat to take the pill or you know, use other kinds of birth control? We've been investigating just normal sort of contraceptive hormones, which again have been widely used in the human population. So we know they're safe. We know they're effective, but it's also about timing of delivery. So what we do is we put these hormones into a bait, just like you would with any poison bait, and the rats have to eat that. So we've shown that scientifically that works for a number of species. So if, you, if they feed on this contraceptive bait for a period of days, they, they are infertile for a period of time. Of course, it's reversible, just like, you know, if you stop taking, if, if you're a human and you stop taking contraceptives, eventually you can get pregnant again. So, but some people, of course, would like them to be permanently infertile. So once they eat something, no more babies ever. You're not looking to wipe out rats, are you, from, from humanity? Because clearly they're part of the very delicate ecological system. So, so, it, so there are what we call trade-offs. So the, the irreversibility of it is a trade-off. It's good for the environment. It's good for safety issues. But it does present this challenge of when you deliver a bait and how long do you deliver for deliver it for fertility control is being it has been developed in commercially in some parts of the world so that you know i think this is probably a, a great alternative to replace at least some poison use that in some places and in some contexts we'll be able to use fertility control instead so steve my final question because i know you're a busy man and i must let you i, I could talk about this all day because it it's so interesting and you're such a, an interesting person to talk to about rats um what would you like to be remembered for in all your work on rats what is the one thing if you could choose one thing that professor steve belmain would like to be associated with for eternity well in terms of rodent work i would i guess it would be this uh, concept of ecologically based rodent management trying to understand sustainable ways of managing rodent pest problems that improve our livelihoods, but at the same time, doesn't impact negatively on the environment and make matters worse by just through the control itself. So it's, it's a combination of trapping and fertility control and all these concepts put together 
to, to manage rodent pests in a sustainable way. That is brilliant. Well, Professor Steve Belmain, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast to talk about your work with rats. And I hope to do another one with you soon. Thank you. Yes, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.